Have you ever missed out on a good business or investment opportunity? Something that'd really turn a profit and set you up. Uh, The other week there was an article about a bloke. He writes about jazz music for for a living, so I'm guessing he's not super rich. In 1997, he sold his shares in Apple. And he sold them, all of his shares, for almost 10 grand. And you can't blame the bloke because at the time Apple was going down the gurgler. But if he had held on to them, today he could have sell those same shares for about 6.4 million dollars. And not that it works out that way, but if you average that out, that's about 250,000 US dollars every year for the last 26 years. You'd kick yourself, wouldn't you? In 1997, ditching your Apple stock looked like the smart move, but the story's different with the benefit of hindsight. And when it comes to trusting God and living His way, it sometimes looked like, looks like the smart money is on ditching God. Uh, following God can be difficult. It can feel like we miss out on fun stuff other people enjoy. You might wonder whether it's worth it. Is there more profit found in turning your back on Jesus? In Malachi's day, most of God's people had come to that conclusion. They'd done the maths in their own head and their own heart and decided there's nothing to be gained in following God and living his way. But God has a serious warning and a generous promise for them. And this part of Malachi is really important for us. It it raises a couple of tricky questions. But I reckon in our culture that's obsessed with money and the economy, what God says today might well be the open heart surgery we need. But the good news is God promises true life for those who turn to him. And that's the good news because like the rest of Malachi, in this passage, God is stinging in his rebuke of his people. But the passage begins and ends with God's generosity, with God's generosity. Have a listen from verse 6. So this is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then jump down to verse 17. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Normally when someone says that they're not going to change, your heart sinks. Your heart sinks because they're stubborn and proud of it. But when God says he won't change, it makes your heart sing. Because what God's saying is he's sticking with his promises. No matter how stubborn and rebellious his people might be, God won't won't give up on his promises. If they turn back to God, if they repent of their sins and ask for forgiveness, they're going to get it. God doesn't change So he's not going to turn his back on them. 
because he doesn't change. He continues to love his people. And even though they don't deserve it, because of his faithfulness, verse 17, they will be his treasured possession. That's the really good news, beginning and ending. But how are God's people treating him? Well, in verse 7, once again, they sneer at God. How are we to return? We don't need to change. What have we done wrong? Verse 8, they're stealing from God. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Uh, Tithe is an old word meaning 10%. In the law of Moses, uh, the Jewish law, there are three tithes, three compulsory 10% contributions. In Numbers 18, there's an annual tithe. 10% of your produce every year was given to the Levites. Uh, The point of the tithe was Levites didn't have land. Their job was to keep the temple working, to make sure sacrifices happened, and also, as we read in Malachi 1, to teach the scriptures to God's people. Uh, In Deuteronomy 14, there are two other tithes. One is an annual tithe taken to the temple for a feast with your family. Sounds like a great tithe, doesn't it? You get to eat 10% of your food on one day with your family and also with the Levites working in the temple. Uh, The other tithe was collected every three years, and this tithe was to provide for the poor, for the poor. Sorry. Um, So it sounds like all up, the whole tithe wasn't 10%, but somewhere between 23 and 30% of the produce of the land was given to the poor and to provide for the Levites. Uh, With offerings, offerings the law had two kinds. Some offerings were free will, so voluntarily giving thanks to God. Other offerings were mandatory. Offerings are in-kind provisions for the temple. So in Exodus 25, the Israelites were required to provide cloth and metals and other things to build the tabernacle, and they were offerings. The issue in Malachi's day was people weren't doing this. They weren't bringing the required tithes and offerings. And from God's perspective, this isn't being stingy. It's stealing. Do you see that in verse 8? They're robbing God. If someone's collecting money at your workplace, uh, they want to buy a gift for someone's retirement. If everyone's putting in 20 bucks and you put in $2, your $2 might be cheap, it might be stingy, but you're not stealing. But God says by not bringing tithes and offerings, his people are stealing. This is a radical way of approaching money and possessions. Israel living in the law, uh, living in, living under the law and in the land God had, gave, had given them, uh, was neither capitalist nor communist. They didn't see land as belonging to them, and it didn't belong to the government. It belongs to God. God had given the land to their ancestors as an inheritance. It's God's land. It's God's produce. So he can say what to do with it. If he says, uh, give tithes to provide for the Levites in the temple and the poor, then to not give the tithe 
is not merely stingy, it's stealing. And by stealing from God, they're not getting rich themselves. In fact, they're suffering under God's curse. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 10 might have some of us nervous. Test me in this. Won't God open the floodgates? It's the kind of thing false teachers with big hair and shiny suits say. But but it's in the Bible. What's going on? Is the prosperity gospel right? The answer is we've got to pay attention to the whole Bible. There's no doubt this is a particular promise to a particular people at a particular time. If they stop robbing God... The pests would go and the fruit would ripen on the tree that have not enough space in their barns. It sounds like obeying God is a guaranteed way to wealth. But this is not a universal promise. It's not the story of the whole Bible. Quite often, the rich are God's enemies. The unrighteous are rich and the righteous cry out to God for help. For example, in Luke's record of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God and then he goes on to say but woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort who's cursed the rich Jesus also famously says indeed it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God wealth is not always a blessing in fact it can be a curse So why does God promise physical, material blessing in Malachi's day? Why does he promise abundance if they return and stop robbing him? We've got to remember where we are in God's big picture. In Malachi's day, God's people are the Israelites who've returned from exile. They're living in God's promised land, a physical land with farms and rivers. And even though they're in the land God promised to Abraham, they don't really possess it because instead of being ruled by God's king, they're ruled by a pagan Persian king. The important thing for us is this. Because at at this point of the story, God's people are a nation, and because God's land is a physical place with farms and mines, God's promised blessings are often expressed physically. But for us now, well, who are God's people? Well, it's anyone, Jew or Gentile, who is trusting in Jesus, who is God's king. And God's place, well, we're awaiting the new heavens and and new earth. Here, today, we live as strangers and exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so there's no promise that obeying God, even obeying God by being generous, there's no promise God will make Christians wealthy. Now, one question we need to come back to, and we'll come back to it at the end, is this. As God's people, 
in the Lord Jesus, is there a command for us to give tithes and offerings? Are Christians commanded to give 10% or 23% of our income for the poor and for the proclamation of the gospel? That's a question we're going to come back to, but let's keep on moving with Malachi as we hear God's final accusation. His people are arrogant and blame God for their situation. Verse 13, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Now, if you've been with us for the whole way through Malachi, you read this and you shake your head. Do they have no idea? They accuse God, hey, what's the point of obeying you? What do we get from it? But from what we've heard in Malachi, it's not that God's people have faithfully obeyed God and yet God's made life hard for them. The the opposite is true. The reason they feel there's no profit is because they're disobeying God. They sneer at God's love. The priests bring worthless sacrifices. Husbands have no regard for their wives, callously divorcing. They're so messed up they call evil good and today we've heard they rob God. And we see where their heart is. They're really there. Where's their heart in verse 15? They're self-focused. It's all about them. When they think about God, their first question is, what do I get out of it? How does godliness and obedience benefit me? Let's be honest. I think that's often us. We'll obey God when we think there's something we'll get out of it, but we'll ignore God when it's too hard or too costly. Living God's way often looks stupid or even offensive to the world. It can look costly to live God's way. And we might wonder whether it's worth it, especially when it comes to money and generosity, which is why we need to hear Malachi's question. Are you guilty of robbing God? Our culture is obsessed with money and possessions. Our culture tells us greed is good, but the Bible says greed is idolatry. The Bible says God rules the world, but the way most of us think about the economy, it's almost spiritual. The market is an almost divine force in our world with its own will and mind. Our culture is obsessed with money and possessions because it's one of, I think it's the main way we show status. If you've got the shiny toys, the right address, well then people know where you sit in the scheme of things. That's why we love money and possessions, but Jesus says the last will be first. So how can we have what God teaches us is true profit? I think the claim of Malachi 3 remains. Uh, Everything belongs to God. We are caretakers or stewards of God's stuff. Uh, The money in your bank account isn't yours. It's God's. 
If you own a house, well, actually, you don't. And it's not even owned by the bank. If it's mortgaged, it belongs to God. Everything we have comes from the hand of God. But how do we put that into practice? How do we live as if that's the case? Once again, we've got to listen to the, the whole Bible. The Bible says we work so as to not to burden others. So it's right to use money to provide for yourself and your family. And it's, it's even right to save for the future, if that's possible, to provide for your future self and your future family's self. But the Bible is even more clear. We work to share. Ephesians 4, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work that they may have something to share with those in need. God provides so we can generously share. Under the law of Moses, there were rules about how to share tithes and offerings to provide for those working in the temple and to care for the poor. Followers of Jesus aren't given a percentage we must give. But we have plenty of commands about sharing and examples of astounding generosity in the earliest Christians. For example... Uh, the church in Philippi gave money to Paul. They did this so he could take the gospel to Thessalonica. It's a little bit like the tithes providing for the Levites. They gave so Paul could be devoted to ministry. Uh, Also, 2 Corinthians. There's quite a bit in 2 Corinthians about generosity. So 2 Corinthians 8, turn there in your Bible. If you've got one of these Bibles, it's page 806. Uh, In 2 Corinthians... Paul talks about a collection. Uh, Jerusalem is facing a famine. And so he's organised churches around the Mediterranean to give. He wants them to help churches in Jerusalem. Have a listen, 2 Corinthians 8. Have a listen to the kind of generosity these early churches had. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had early made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving." The Macedonian churches have been astoundingly generous. Paul's challenge is for the Corinthians to do the same. But this isn't a command. There's no percentage. It's generosity. He doesn't want them to be compelled by his authority, but compelled by love. Verse 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness earnestness. Of others. Stop and think about how you use money and possessions. 
maybe the four weeks before December 25 are not a good time to ask this. If someone was to audit your last couple of months of spending, would they see someone who loves God and loves other people? Or would they see someone who's selfish? We can say we we believe in God and love him, but how we use our money more often than not tells the truth about our heart. How do we learn to love God and show it with money and possessions? Well, like the Corinthians and the Macedonian churches, plan to be generous. Although there's no 10% rule for Christians, it's not a bad place to start. And then challenge yourself to be more generous. Uh, Who do we give to? Once again, the Old Testament pattern also isn't bad. It's also what we, we see in the early church, isn't it? Providing for those who do gospel ministry and giving to the poor. Uh, I reckon Christians should prioritise giving to gospel ministry. Non-believers will give to the bushfire appeal, but they won't give money to discipling uni students in Vanuatu. They're not going to give to ensure the gospel is preached for, in Aussie churches. So there's the model, isn't it? Giving to those things. I reckon for many of us, we need to train our hearts, don't we? Generosity starts small. And it starts when our capacity is small. I'm really thankful that when I was at uni, uh, my church uh, encouraged me to start giving even on a small income. I had intermittent work, but it was good to get into the habit then, giving something every time I got paid. Uh, that way my heart was trained in generosity when I got a full-time job, uh, giving then to our church and to the, the uni Christian movement that I'd been a part of and to people doing gospel work overseas. Uh, Anita and I have done the same thing since getting married, using 10% as a starting point, which wasn't all that much when I was at Theological College living off Centrelink, but it was even then it was good for our hearts. What about you? How are you giving generously in your situation? Uh, one of the things that might help, uh, there's a couple of copies, not many, just a couple of copies of uh, a little booklet, Gospel Generosity, on the welcome table. It's a personal or household Bible study to help you think through generosity. Uh, why should Christians be generous? Well, partly because everything we have belongs to God. It comes from him because it belongs to him. Like everything we do, we use money and possessions for God's glory. But more than this, God overflows with generosity. Malachi gets us thinking about brass tacks, how we think about money, but more important is knowing Jesus' generosity to us. Have a read again, 2 Corinthians 8 and now verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is good news. The King of Heaven takes on our humanity. He became poor. He lowered himself to the shame and pain of death on a cross. And he does this to make us truly rich in him. Not rich with a a big house or money in the bank, but true eternal riches, eternity in the new creation with God. Brothers and sisters, we can afford to be generous 
To be so generous, it looks stupid in our money-obsessed culture, like the Macedonian churches, giving up the the nice house or the new car because we're giving to the the work of the gospel or to help those who are in, in need. We can do this because in Jesus we have eternal wealth, riches that exceeds even $6.4 million in Apple stocks. That's real wealth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded by your generosity, your generosity in creation, providing us with what we need in this life, your generosity in your faithfulness, you never change, which means we can entrust ourselves to your faithful promises. We're most of all astounded by your generosity in Jesus, that for our sake he became poor, emptying himself in taking on our humanity and going down to the cross. And he did this that we might share in his his righteousness, holiness and resurrection life. Fill our hearts with this truth. May we know your generosity in Christ. And out of knowing this deeply, may our hearts overflow with generosity. May we not rob you, but treat everything in our possession as yours. And we, as caretakers, using your resources for your glory. Amen.